drink and then we'll have a, a sort of, uh, and I'll have to make a few comparisons and then we can have a conversation. But again, I'm quite happy for questions during or after this on Simone Vey. Um, uh, Simone Vey is the exact contemporary of Etty, um, except she lives in, in France. She's, um, like Edith Stein, she was a philosopher, Simone Vey, she studied philosophy, um, but very different kind of philosophy, more French than German. The Germans love this sort of rather systematic kind of theology, I mean, philosophy, where she was um, part of that existentialist movement, which was a sort of literary um, philosophy. She was friends with um, Sartre and all that sort of scene in Paris. Uh, she was um, at the um, sort of yeah. And her brother was a famous mathematician who escaped, actually, her parents and the brother escaped France uh, during the war and to America. And uh, he was a famous mathematician later on in America. Simone Weil, she came from a, a Jewish family in Paris who were also not practicing Jews. They were secular Jews, um, but very intellectual upbringing. Uh, her parents were school teachers, and she was a sort of both her and her brother were sort of prodigy. Apparently, at the, the age of six, all she would read was Le Monde, the, 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 new, the sort of newspaper, <laughs> and uh, sat there doing mathematical um, studies with her brother. Um, and she went to the Ecole Supérieure, where in the first year when they introduced women to the Ecole Supérieure, which was the highest sort of secondary education in Paris. And uh, there was her and Simone Beauvoir, de Beauvoir uh, who were at the top of the class. And then there were 28 men who were uh, <laughs> underneath. <laughs> and she was... Um, but again, like Edith Stein, when she um, left, uh, there, there was no teaching opportunity in universities for women at that time. So she also became a school teacher um, in teaching girls. And like Edith Stein, she wrote a lot about education. I mean, she's not as she's a very different sort of kind of writer than Edith Stein, but she wrote about education and how education works. Okay, we'll come on to that. Um, and like Edith Stein, she was driven by this of truth, seeking truth. Um, and again, this truth comes, well, like Edith said, if you seek truth, you'll come to, to God. And uh, Simone puts it even more strongly, Christ likes us to prefer truth to him, because before being Christ, he is truth. If anyone turns aside from Christ to go towards the truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms. So always seek what is true. And this is, was a guiding light for her. She um, came to uh, agree, a deep sort of connection with the person of Jesus. Um, but she felt truth was more than just what Christianity was saying. She was a, a scholar of 
classical civilization and she loved Eastern religions, particularly Buddhism. And this again was a time before the Second Vatican Council when the church was very narrow in its sort of understanding of what truth was. And um, she felt that the, she could never join, she could never be baptized or join the church because it was too narrow a conception of truth. Uh, and uh, so she didn't. Um, she's, we've seen that in, well, we could say Edith Stein has this, her cons- idea of truth is like phenomenological thing, is how the subjective and the objective fit together, how your personal perception and the objective truth out there, the way things are, how they connect. We've seen with Etty, it's more like your personal truth is the, the whole thing. And you will see with Simone Weil, for her, the objective truth is the whole thing. The personal is completely irrelevant. <laughs> she very undermines any sort of getting your own uh, personal perspective. She says, forget about it. Just <laughs> so um, when she writes, quite opposite from Etty, who writes about herself, um, when Simone Weil writes, she says, the op- in the operation of writing, the hand which holds the pen and the body and soul which are attached to it, with all their social environment, are things of the minutest importance. <laughs> the subject, uh, and then she even says, nothing concerning me can have any kind of importance. She's just what is true. So she, she really sought for uh, objectivity. Um, and she felt, this is why I've, I've included her as a sort of mystic, because she hides herself. <laughs> I'm not saying this is necessarily all mystics, but she's, it's as if everything comes to her from outside. Um, she says the truth reveals itself to her. Where, um, but she is hiding herself. You, you don't, um, quite the opposite from Etty. Um, but like Edith Stein and Etty, she has this sense that um, the primary experience of truth of God is in silence, and she has this mystical conversion, um, which is to do with the quality of silence. Um, the, the, the silence is more real than, than any sound. Not that it's not an absence of sound. It's a, a, a presence which you can actually feel. Um, yeah. um, she says, "I'm using these paintings by Caspar David Friedrich, a German painter. That gives that sense of a bit like Simone Weil. Caspar David Friedrich paints his figures often facing away from you, as if what what." Is not what they are not what is important. It's what they are seeing is is what's important, and that's with Simone Weil. She's trying to hide herself completely so that people can see what she's seeing uh, as the important thing. Um, this experience of silence, she says, that noises only reach me after crossing the silence. So it's a very strong feeling. Um, 
And this brought her to a sense of the presence of God and specifically to Christian faith. She was unlike the other two, or certainly unlike Edith Stein. She didn't feel any connection to her Jewish background. Um, and, in fact, she never really liked the Old Testament. <laughs> she, she thought it was very primitive and, and not very pleasant. And, and um, but she loved the Gospels. She loved the person of Jesus. So she, she was um, uh, never really, and she wasn't really interested in, in any sense of racial identity. She was part of that um, maybe French sort of liberation of national or racial identity. She wasn't, she said that was all very limited. Um, but she had a great sense of the person of, of Christ, the Gospels, that brought her to, to faith. Also, her experience of, of praying in churches and things. But even that, she was very worried of, of a religious identity. She never wanted to take on any religious identity. So she would not want to be seen as a Christian. Um, and she said that the, um, the mysteries of Christian faith, she loved them, but she would not affirm them. Um, partly this was, again, uh, the time when, when well, that we, we identify with a particular faith through our beliefs and through our... Um, that we, she would not believe anything. She would just love, try to relate to Christianity through loving uh, the faith, not believing it. <laughs> because belief would be involved in narrowing of the mind. Anyway, there's a particular... Um, so she says, I, I always remain at the point where Christianity intersects with all that is not Christian. Uh, there was so much um, outside of Christianity that she knew was true, uh, that she had to be open to both. And so she dwelt at the threshold of the church. Uh, again, these are, sorry, all these paintings, both readers. Quite, and then she describes being at the threshold of the church without moving, quite still, patiently suffering, aspect you'll find in her writing. Only now my heart has been transported forever, I hope, into the blessed sacrament exposed on the altar. So she, it's funny that she even sensed that the complete reality of, say, the sacraments and loving them, absolutely loving them, but never wanting to receive them. <laughs> and because she, she felt it would be a betrayal of her intellectual integrity to adhere to a, a faith that blocked too much stuff out. Um, church has changed a bit, but it's still a bit of the case. So. <laughs> yeah. But I find it fascinating that she really did feel what it was all about. Um, she went back to our little prayer thing. Um, like Edith and Etty, she developed this practice of prayer um, in the morning. <laughs> I made a practice of saying the Greek Our Father through once each morning with absolute attention. So uh, we've seen that Edith proposed an hour in the morning, Etty five minutes, and <laughs> she just 
doesn't give a time, but she gives, she puts the emphasis on complete attention. This is why Father Lawrence loves Simone Weil. <laughs> um, so you don't know how to measure that in time because um, she does say if during the recitation my attention wanders or goes to sleep in the minutest degree, I begin again until I've succeeded in going through it with absolute pure attention. So she doesn't give a time, she's practicing attention and if she notices during the Our Father her mind has wandered onto anything else, she starts again. So it could have been going on for an hour or, or it could have been just five minutes depending on her state of mind. Um, yeah. So the other, uh, another interesting thing, which is not this attention thing is often, is how she then deals with decisions. This is something I've tried to be working with, because you meditate, but then how do you deal with your everyday life and how you make decisions? And uh, she wrote this thing on the will of God, how do I know it? How do I know what God's will is in, the, in my life or in the, in the, even in the day ahead? Um, and again, it's the practice of letting go that we've seen in, in Edith and particularly stressed this um, to not try and work things out but to come to stillness. If she, Simone Weiss says, if we make a quietness within ourselves, if we silence all desires and opinions and if with love, without formulating any words, we bind our whole soul to think, I will be done. We take that as our mantra, we might say. Uh, and we give our full, without the words, so just the sentiment. Then that thing which, after that, we feel sure we should do, even though in certain respects we may be mistaken, is the will of God. Because if we ask for bread, we will not be given a stone. So we just, she's saying if you hand over to God's will, then you just, you can then be sure that it will be given and you just do what you feel you should do. <laughs> a sort of a, a discernment, little discernment of spirits, which is not so much through us working out what God's will is, but just allowing that will to, to get into our day by giving it the total, uh, total attention for that moment. Um, so this removing of our own uh, ego or our attempt to understand ego or our lives is at the centre of Simone Weil's teaching, this self-effacement. Um, everything can be stripped away. She says even she knew some of the... She wasn't so much aware of the Holocaust, uh, but what the soldiers... She, they, she identified identified very much more with being French than she did Jewish. In fact, she didn't identify particularly with being Jewish, but French. And she felt an incredible sympathy, empathy for the soldiers fighting, especially the French soldiers. And um, she felt what it was, this, that the war created this poverty. But in the end, the real poverty comes when we remove uh, the power to say, I. <laughs> that's what we have to give to God we have to give ourselves um, 
she's in this sort of rather enigmatic saying, she loves, God gave me by my being in order that I should give it back to him. Give back uh, our being. That's the real renunciation. The I thought, which is prior to all our thinking, is the I thought, and we have to give that up. She even said, the I thought in me is sin. (laughs) Anyway, that's another point. (laughs) Um, And this is to do, she says, if we find fullness of joy in the thought that God is, we must find the same fullness in the knowledge that we ourselves are not, for it is the same thought. If God is, we are not. (laughs) So she's trying to remove the subjective aspect completely. Um, The sin in me says I. So she was very worried about the spiritual ego. If you become religious and yet keep the I thought, she thought that would be completely counterproductive. So if we start thinking that we're competitive in extinguishing our ego, or this little model of unenlightenment down here, the light in me acknowledges the dimness in you. <laughs> the, the sort of spiritual ego. Um, anyway, so it is an imaginary divinity which we think we have. Uh, an interesting little saying, she says, uh, we, yes, this, the Christ, yeah, we strip ourselves of that imaginary divinity as Christ did of his real divinity. Christ is the only one who had actually the right to say I, and then he took away that by um, self-emptying, and then we, who have no right to say I before God, have to even more... Um, take away that. And this creates this removal of the the I, which is also trying to get things for ourselves. The removal of it creates a vacuum. And this, um, like a a water pump, you pull up the water by creating the vacuum. And so you, you enter into the experience of God by removing the I. (laughs) <laughs> by removing self-consciousness or self-centeredness. And then, naturally, God comes up. Um, she uses, again, this... Uh, inherently, we, we want to get... For whatever we give, we want to get something. But if we let go of that, as it were, a suction of air is produced and a supernatural reward results. Um, so we have to... We only get the supernatural reward if we let go of our uh, wanting something at a, at a natural level from what we do or, or from our prayer. And this is, is this self-emptying, um, she says, is, is an imitation of God. Uh, you've seen that, that, that God is, uh, God could only create ourselves or the world by hiding himself. Otherwise, so creation for her was a sort of God pulling himself back in order for something to be which was other than God. 
otherwise there would be nothing but God. So God had to create this emptiness in which anything else could be. And so our response to God should also be a, a, this um, drawing ourselves back, hiding ourselves. Uh, and in a sense, she, well, she says that there's this hiddenness of our response to God means that we should be completely undemonstrative in our religion. <laughs> we shouldn't want to be seen at all to be religious. Uh, so we would be, our religion should be hidden in the world. Something Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the same time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was saying the same thing, that, we, that the, the modern faith had to be practiced as if religion uh, was, the, 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 the place would be the world from now on. Excuse me, for all that she says, uh, not from the, you know, she's rejected the Jewish tradition, that is classical Hasidic Jewish mysticism. Is it? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering whether for all her rejection, yeah. something has permeated. The idea God could only create himself by hiding himself is archetypical Hasidic mysticism. Is it? Oh, yeah. There's a Hebrew word for it, isn't there? Simsum. Simsum, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting, yes. Yeah. Buddhist probably, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. She was very interested in mysticism, but she tended to be rather keen on sort of... Uh, but she may have encountered Jewish mysticism. She may have done it. I'm not actually sure. She was definitely keen on Eastern Buddhist stuff. and yeah. French. God is this, is this great absence. Um, the more, yeah, anyway, certainly any caricature that we found God, well, firstly the I in that sentence would show that it would be incorrect. <laughs> so, um, anyway. Um, if there's a God, please show me a sign. <laughs> <laughs> Sermbe is definitely one of those who she emphasizes massively the what we call the via negativa no no um, signs no uh. <laughs> this is another French thing uh, about the same time it's fascinating René Magritte the, the trahison des images ceci n'est pas un pipe so he, he put this painting of pipe up in the, this is not a pipe, and everyone said, well, what is it then? And he said, well, you try and smoke it. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's just a re representation, um, and this is true, anyway, 
So all in it, so the difference between image and the reality. Uh, this is not a pipe. So what Simone Weil is doing that with with God all the time. The difference between the image and the reality, and she's um, the, the images can get in the way. <laughs> so there's God. <laughs> um, so the, the false God, which is the image of God, is like the true one in everything, except that we cannot touch him, prevents us from ever coming to the true one. And yet she says, uh, when you have to go in this, uh, that we need the images in order to get started on an idea of what God is. But um, So the, it has a preparatory form, but we have to then let go of the images in order to come to the real God. Um, the other thing she she puts big emphasis on is this thing called uh, necessity that we find God uh, not by um, or we find God's will I should have put this to the will God's will not by trying to work it out we find it by doing what we have to do uh, and that's to be to submit to what um, life asks or imposes on us is our is our real um, place where we find God? So it's actually quite different from Edith Stein. Edith Stein puts a big emphasis on freedom of choice that we can choose. The, the centre of the soul is this freedom of choice to choose what we want from life, and this is why she writes all about the women should be free to do any profession. Women should be. Um, people should be free to change religions whereas Simone puts it that everything is about what you what is asked of you in life that is what you, where you, you have to kind of uh, that's where you find God um, yeah. so she goes so it's not really predestination it's the sense that whatever is is our way to God. So all things which come about are according to the will of God, without any exception. So we have to accept whatever is. Um, <laughs> and that's, of course, there's a lot of problems with that when you deal with the Holocaust, for example, and we possibly accept that. But she's sort of saying that whatever, the only way we live in contact with reality is to accept the way it is. So, that's the horror of the war. This is um, a Chagall painting. Uh, Chagall was another one of the Jewish people at the same time. He has got away to America, French, like Simone Weil, Jewish, Russian background though, I think. And um, he was someone who made the, you can't really see clearly, but often the crucifix in his paintings as if he, he associated the, the, the sufferings of the war, or Jewish people particularly, already he, he could make this, the link with the crucifixion, or he, in his paintings he often did. So how do we accept that as the will of God? And Mark Chagall, this is in Mainz, stained glass windows he did for a church in Germany, uh, which shows the, uh, 
uh, crucifixion in the See, he lived much longer, survived, unlike those three women we looked at today. Shagal again. Um, and this giving of uh, giving of herself, um, she did want to do that in, in in her role as a teacher, and then working for the French resistance. She has, uh, worked for the resistance in France, and then had to escape to England and worked with Charles de Gaulle in England to try and help the, the, the resistance. And she gave herself totally to it, but in such a way that her health got very deteriorated. She wouldn't eat except what the French prisoners of war were allowed to eat. She found out about this. Some people say she was anorexic anymore, but she, on principle, was more out of empathy with um, the soldiers in the war. And she had a lot of, uh, I mean, even uh, Charles de Gaulle, after Simone Weil died of malnutrition in England, she died in Kent um, at a young age. Uh, Charles de Gaulle said, what she said, the femme, elle était fou or something. She said, the woman was mad. <laughs> very little, and people, even now, the people she was working for didn't really understand what, what she was trying to, to do. Um, so anyway, this, but she has this sort of, which we've seen in Etty and uh, this self-giving, but she puts it in a very, nearly in a self-hating kind of way, sometimes Simone Weil. So she says, May, and this is someone who comes from a very intellectual, sophisticated background, may all my sensitivity, intelligence and love be stripped away from me and devoured by God may be transformed into Christ's substance and given for food for the afflicted whose body and soul lack every kind of nourishment. She becomes a holocaust, but we've seen that in the others in a way, but then she does it in a particular kind of self-destructive way, even slightly. In the, yeah. But uh, we've seen similar things said by Etty, but in a Etty says, I've broken my body like bread and shared it among people. And why not? They were hungry and have gone without for so long. This giving of yourself as if your body was bread. And Edith Stein says, um, and this is writing as a, a nun, with all the rules and regulations of living in those days as a nun. And she said, well, it's all, that's all relative. As for what concerns our relations with our fellow men, the anguish in our neighbor's soul must break all precepts. All that we do is a means, but love is an end in itself. So she felt that she, to respond to the needs of another was much more important than keeping any rules. Uh, so anyway, they all had this. Um, Simone Weil, uh, this is her, she came to England, and there, as I say, she uh, her health deteriorated and uh, she died she puts a lot of emphasis on affliction and suffering um, and how you use suffering as a way to God and some people have disliked that it's interesting in her last entry in, in her notebook she says I must move towards an abiding sense of 
the divine mercy because she did have this rather sort of extreme sense of the suffering but suffering um, this suffering couldn't be explained but it became a means of of, of self-giving yeah. anyway I want one aspect of suffering which she also imposed on herself was that she was very intellectual she became a teacher but she used to go in her holidays to work in uh, first in the vineyards in France to get an experience she was also I didn't say she was very a socialist. She believed very much in the working uh, Marxist, except then she became very critical of Marxism as well. But the working person was the most important figure in society. And she wanted to experience what it was to particularly manual work. She worked in the vineyards, and then she worked in factories. And this was also very hard on her physically and mentally. Um, but she found in the experience of manual work, she was able to let go of this intellectualism and be in the moment. Uh, so, um, so she's when you're doing some activity, especially when you're exhausted and you're doing it, you're not able to think of past and future. You're you're held in the moment. Um, so she saw that as the value of of particularly manual work and work which was sort of drudgery, I mean really hard. This became even more extreme in the, the Renault factories she used to work in. And she always gave her money that she earned to to charity, to well, particularly to, to get a library for, for working people. She wanted to develop this travelling library for, to the factories. Anyway, but she would spend the whole holiday working in these factories and it was sort of just self-destructive in some ways because also she had a great love for silence and these were really noisy places, big machines that she was working and um, monotonous work as well absolutely nothing to give your mind to uh, and she felt that this was the most appalling thing and yet also in some ways the most beautiful thing this, and again, sort of self-destruction um, she felt it was beautiful in that the monotony of the work was like eternal. But sometimes when she was working these machines, she would go outside of any sense of herself, outside of any sense of time. She would taste sort of eternity. She would no longer exist. Uh, the atrocious thing is what she said it was like the pendulum, that it was time time sterilized, time just continuously going on, like you're waiting for something to end and it won't end uh, in this terrible experience of time. So the, the beauty of escaping into the eternal moment and the, the terrible thing of being trapped in time. This is again some paintings of Chagall. I, I love this. He, he often puts clocks in his paintings as well, and the sense of time, the beauty of time, this pendulum. Time is a river without banks. Uh, the patience of love, the clock up there. Time, patience involves how we use time. Uh, 
the patient with having to wait. <laughs> in, uh, I, mean, I live in Ireland, and in the shops, if you you're often stuck behind a really long conversation, <laughs> and you just have to be patient. on the clock with the blue wing. Um, so, yeah, that's a particular aspect of Simone Ray. So this, you know, I'm leaving it, no, I'm leaving it there. There's other things one could draw out of Simone Ray, but um, just because this practice of attention and then this uh, value of finding the eternal moment in your work, even in the drudgery of it or the monotony of it. Uh, in some ways, for her, the more monotonous, the more likely you would find the eternal in it. Those are two aspects. Um, these are the, I've collected the last, the last um, uh, writings of all of them. So Simone Weil's last words she wrote in her notebook before she died was, I must find divine mercy. And uh, Etty's last letter, Investorborg, despite everything, life is full of beauty and meaning. And uh, Edith Stein's last line in, in the, the Science of the Cross, which she left on her desk when uh, she just finished it, when the uh, Gestapo came to collect her after the dark night, there springs up the living flame of love. So these. Uh, I leave it that, and maybe now we can have uh, time just to reflect on all three of them and uh, how they, how they, or something on Simone Weil maybe first. We'll give Simone Weil. So, if there's any comments or questions, or anyone want to share something about? I'm just thinking because you've got some amazing people commenting. Could we, could we even microphone this time? So, anyone can hear a bit, a bit more. So, if you put your hand up, and I'll bring the microphone. Hi. Um, it seems that all of them were seeking truth and they, they found it in different ways. So just something that I just gleaned through all the ways that you were drawing everything together that and it's just my own question to myself, that maybe under the guise of truth, God is hidden everywhere, in faith, in the world, in, in people, in words, in the land, in life and seasons, and it seems that whether it's the Hasidic faith of Judah, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's whatever, they were all seeking truth. They found truth. Simone put it really clearly in saying that it was God's hidden. And, and I thought that was really, that's really quite, um, not startling, quite exciting actually, that they sought truth and they found it. And in finding truth, they found God. Yeah. Um, so God it, Maybe God is hiding again, and it just spoke to me again about the time we're in. You know, God's hidden, but He's seeking to be found as always. And they all, they all seek truth in their own particular ways. I think all of us, the seeking of truth is is quite particular to to the kind of person we are, the way we do. Reminds me of the um, the, the, the woman at the 
and um, he says not in Jerusalem, not in this mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Yeah. When you've spoken about each one of them, that for me is what, what's come up for each of them. It's, it, you know, they're so different, and yet all the time it's, it, it goes back again in that circle to their interior position on it. Yeah. Yeah. And then for me that just, you know, not, not embracing the Jewish faith, then embracing it, then yeah. converting to Catholicism, being yeah. an intellectual and not yeah. take, wanting to take on any faith. Yeah. I think for me, out of all three people, Etty is the one that, that I just completely warm to. There's something almost innocent that she's... she's um, She's not trying to be anything. She's not trying to reject anything or embrace anything. Mm. She, she just seems to be filled with this innocent love that just, um, mm. yeah. 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 Mm. But definitely they're all, I think, that piece of scripture about spirit and truth is, mm. is what comes through each of them. I'm just really struck by all three and how inspiring it is for all of us because each of them sought truth in their own way and found truth, found God in their, in kind of in their own image and that that's what we, the opportunity we each have that it will be slightly different for each of us. I find that really, really encouraging. Yes, Etty is sort of self-demonstrative. <coughs> Simone is self-negating, and Edith is slightly sort of self, slightly detached from herself. <laughs> She's sort of it's very philosophical, doesn't sort of give too much away. But actually, Simone is very, it's sort of so the, the the extent to which she tries to remove herself is so expressive of herself. So. It's, about her character, and a lot of books on her or talks about Simone Weil, it always comes back to was she a masochist or was she a <laughs> opposite of what she wanted. She said, "Don't ever think about me. I'm unimportant. What is what I'm saying?" That was what she tried. But the problem is, she said it with such dramatic sort of self-negation that you end up being fascinated on that psychologically what she was going on. But she wasn't interested in that, in her, in her writing. Yeah. Uh, she talks quite a lot about affliction and yeah. being afflicted. Yeah. And um, I'd like you to explain a little bit about the purpose of yeah. affliction and being afflicted, if you can. Oh, yeah. Quite, I find it uh, work really hard going at times. Yes, well, a bit like... Edith Stein said it's a different thing, carrying the cross and being crucified. It's, it's, 
Manvay makes a distinction between suffering and affliction. Suffering is something um, that we can take it on ourselves, and in a sense, we can choose suffering for the sake of others. Uh, affliction is something that happens to us, and it crushes us. It's something that um, there's no. You can, you can be heroic in suffering. You can't be heroic in affliction. It's a, it's a humiliation. And she says that Jesus on the cross uh, was afflicted. It was an unheroic death. I mean, it was sort of the fact that he fell. He didn't. He couldn't even carry his cross like a strong man. And the fact that he, he even died quickly because he was weak compared to the people crucified next to him. And uh, she, so she sort of sees this, um, this affliction. How she understands, I mean, she sees it as its value and that it, it completely removes the, the ego. But it can, she says it can either destroy someone or it can create a, uh, a self, complete self-transcendence. Um, but she says it's quite dangerous because when it happens, and we should never wish it to happen to, on anybody because it could destroy them. Uh, and you could, and that's what Etty says about the, the camps. They created sort of very selfish people who could only think about themselves and, and trying to get these tiny little comforts or how they could escape. Or it created saints who just let go of and tried to, to kind of live without thinking about themselves. Um, but yes, the... the um, yes, there's a, this little book, uh, Waiting on God, Simone uh, talks about these ways of experiencing God that may not necessarily be religious. And affliction is one of those. Uh, that it's a way of experiencing God. And it's one that she felt um, well, the, the time she was living in uh, was a way many people were being, was an opportunity for them to find God there. It's difficult because it's awful affliction. <laughs> From what you say, is suffering is voluntary. Affliction is what others impose on you. Yes. Oh, thank you. And it's also the extent and duration of it. She says, she sort of says, well, having a, a toothache is suffering for a while. But if that toothache goes on and on and on uh, and is continuous, it becomes affliction. <laughs> Just a, if, if something is relentless, um, it's not, it, it sort of becomes so much part of you that you, that, that um, uh, anyway, suffering we can kind of uh, get some, get some detachment from, get some perspective on. Affliction we're overwhelmed by. That's the quality of affliction. It's something that completely overwhelms us. I'm, I'm left with the striking feeling of the difference between them. And um, I'm reminded of a quote, I think, which is ascribed to Meister Eckhart and with your other writing in your book where you wrote about the various mystics. I wonder if, you, if, this, if, you, if this quote is accurate. The eye with which we see God is the same eye that God sees us. Oh, yes. I think that's ascribed to Eckhart, although yes. sometimes yes. maybe with the Beguin women. 
but, but what is that? What do you, if you're familiar with that quote, what, what does it, what might it mean? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, find it quite yeah. confounding, but then I'm, yeah. it's come to mind with hearing these three stories. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is the way we relate to God is, is, something in who we are really so that the way God sees us is who we really are and that's the way we relate to God so some people, there's no one way of relating to God there's no one way of seeing God it's quite personal in this, but it's that, um, personal not in a in a sense that that's given by God because who we are is uh, the gift of God. So all of these writers, and I think all of us, we find our own way of of living, our, our own way of meditating. There's no one, okay, Christian meditation, we have this way of meditating, but even within that, one will be differently. Some people say mantra with great um, kind of bom, bom, bom. <laughs> Other people is very gentle. Some people it sort of disappears. Some people just is, is a baseball bat which they're fighting their thoughts with. Everyone's slightly different, and life itself, the way we respond to it. So all, each of us are, uh, are given a unique relationship with God or truth or life. Um, that is uh, kind of the way God God sees us. God doesn't. Uh, see us so saying oh you must do this, do that God wants us to find our own way that's the way I see it thank you, I, I find it very very fascinating but I'm left troubled by Simone, um, oh, yeah. this is the one that troubles me the most uh, and I think it's um, it's something about this the, the denial of the I and the negation of the I and I think um, I wonder if it, it's not so much a, a, a denial of the I that we need to seek but it's more of a, a union of the I with the divine which is something that we might find in the writings of St John of the Cross for instance where there's a sort of like an erotic almost union with yeah. the divine so it's not about negating the divine but finding union of yeah. the of the i with the divine and i think for me that's why that's something missing in simone that there's that lack of uh, retaining the yeah. presence of the incarnation in, in a way that you know our faith is in, incarnational within us yeah. so it, that's not that doesn't require a denial of us. Right. Um, a thought. Yeah. She knew. Yeah, she knew that was an aspect of um, yeah, aspect she had to move towards the love of the fact that she's loved and that she doesn't need to remove herself because she's. she's um. Got every right to be there. <laughs> um, following from that, I, what came to me um, as I looked at the last words and some of the key 
words used by each of these. I, 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 it's related to a big issue I have about the nature of mysticism and spirituality and, and psychology. Um, as, a, as an extrovert, I've often been overwhelmed by the fact that it seems to be introverts who write books on spirituality. And some of us find that quite difficult. Also, they tend to be solitaries um, who have time for solitude, and I live with a partner, so I have these issues. But it does strike me, in each case, there is a moving out from presenting problem to its complement for example, this, this thing about um, Simone Weil, whom I've always had problems with, and yet she talks about mercy, and yet you think, heavens above from what she said, mercy is the last thing she would have accepted for herself. Yeah. So it's looking for the complement of what she doesn't find. In Hetty Il Hillison, we have a woman whose love life is chaotic, whose life is chaotic, and yet we want beauty and meaning, which is about harmony and finding sense. And we have in uh, Edith Stein a slightly remote intellectual, a, wo a loving woman, but a remote intellectual, and yet she talks about empathy. Mm -hmm. So in each of these cases, there is a, con a, a positive contradiction. It's as though they're trying to work out with God what is, what is the contradiction of their own souls? Yeah. And I wonder whether the spiritual life is precisely about trying to get back to an archetype of wholeness from the presenting psychological pro pro problem of everyday life. Yes, yes. that's very well put, yes. yes. I think going back to the question of the, the I with which God sees me is the eye with which I see God. Um, I think all three of them pointed out, certainly the first two, in lots of ways, that it's only in stillness when the words are gone that we come to know God. And therefore, in the stillness where the words are gone, there's no longer any separation. And to me, that's the message, that we go on defining God forever. But we won't know God until we come to stillness. And I think that's the, that was the energy of all three of them, that they drew their energy from that. Yeah. The, the thing about Simone is that it has sort of fierce integrity. I mean, we, it's easy to... It's trying to get behind my motivation, which is sometimes difficult. But there's a fierce integrity of she was living with these uh, socialists in Paris, sitting in their cafes, discussing the, 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 the sort of the value of the, of the working man. And none of them, even Trotsky, who came over to Paris, who she met, and she said, well, none of them actually do it. <laughs> none of them actually go and live with the working men and really feel what they had to live. So she felt that she had to to, to actually feel what they these not be an armchair intellectual socialist, but a, a working person. And it was crushing. It would have been crushing. Imagine Sartre or someone working in a factory. It would be impossible. So, I mean, the um, sort of this sort of fierce integrity, yes, but not very kind on herself, maybe. So, can I ask you, Stefan, 
And you don't have to answer, of course. But which side would you come down on? Simone V, the masochist, or Simone V, the mystic? Actually, it's just a very wonderful combination of both. Because I think, in a way, what you've described, sorry, I don't know what this man is, I think, in a sense, what, what really, for me, is so powerful is the power of paradox. And actual fact, what we think we're seeking, like the eye, the, the eye that I see God with is the eye that God sees me with. And yeah. there's a sense it really is beyond. We can see when we look at those women's lives, yeah. we think we've got a clarity about it. But because they're living the life, and actual fact, they don't quite see it. So there's that notion of just living all the time with paradox and the recognition you genuinely don't know. It's just a kind of like real says to learn to live the questions. So, but I'm not going to let you... What about mystic and masochist? What would you... <laughs> She was probably, I don't know, probably both, but she said, don't, don't look at the, the masochist side, it's not important. The important bit, she, she probably was, but it's not important. The important bit is what she said. And it, she is, what, she, of all these writers, she's the most original. I mean, she's, that's why I put her in the category of mystic particularly, because when sometimes she's, what she says is outside the box. How could, a bit like Eckhart. It's like someone thinking something which is totally outside the normal way of thinking. <laughs> and it, where does she get it from? Edith, in some ways, is quite conventional. You can kind of tell what she's going to say as she goes along. Etty is very touching, human, but you can sympathize all the way along. You feel it. With Simone, you, you read something, you think, my gosh, where did that come from? <laughs> it's like, she's that, she's, so she's... And she says the truth that she was given was given to her. It didn't come from her at all. And that's why she's a sort of mystic. That was what I was going to ask you, because that was my impression as well. Just I've only had her book for the last week, is that something quite... You get a sense of process with these, with with Etty and with Edith Stein, but you get a sense of a very sudden happening happening with Simone Vile, that she, yeah. something comes, yeah. um, something true. comes through her, yeah. and you, you don't get a, a sense that she's going in that direction, then suddenly, <gasps> there it is, and I don't yeah. know how much that, yeah. is your impression. Yeah. She, she, yeah. she, she describes somebody, doesn't she, as, as coming to her. Well, she, spiritual yes, presence. Experience of Christ, yes. Well, she had this conversion experience of Christ, yes. Which again was out of the blue. I mean, she was a, she was a, um, uh, a socialist, Marxist, French, Parisian intellectual with no religious background. And then suddenly she has this experience of Christ. There's no preparation for it at all. Um, and it's not just an experience, it completely takes over. I mean, she, her, her Christian faith is, is astonishing, really, the sense of who Christ is. It's for her, anyway, for her. Yeah. Everything. No, I was just going to make a point. You know, some, some of the people who've uh, sort of um, voiced problems they have with Simone and Vale. I just thought it'd be interesting um, to bring up, you know, one of the books written about her describes her as the last Cathar. And I, oh, yes. Well, I think that's quite an interesting life. Well, she's, 
I mean, there are problems with Simone Bay. I think she's a, she's a bit like, um, uh, hmm, how do you put it? I would never, there's a friend of mine who takes Simone Bay as her spiritual guide. I think I'd be very unwise. Uh, she's, some, she's someone who um, is a sort of wake you up. She's a sort of tonic and sort of, but I would, she's, it's not a whole picture. It, this comes through, for example, in her dismissal of the of the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. She just says, it's, it's a demiurge, it's not God. And so she, and, uh, there's a lack of, of a whole picture. She's cutting a whole bit of the story out and leaving the sort of spiritual, uh, kind of the most sort of refined bits of spirituality, but cutting out the whole human journey of getting there. Uh, and so I wouldn't so, uh, so in the ca- so there is a sort of I don't know if she's, I don't know she's Catholic, but that, certainly there's there's a sense that it may be not that, not and not that, not uh, whole not quite whole but sometimes you need a little bit for example the via negativa the denial of images she puts it so extremely that it corrects the, the, the over-absorption in images that there was contemporary religion at that time, and probably still is. I mean, not images as in visual, visual images, but mental images, beliefs. She said you, can, you should not believe any religion, you should love it. And that, the way she puts it is very striking. It makes you wake up and think, oh, well, that's right. You can love a religion. Why do we have to necessarily think we have to believe it? And the love is what is important, not the belief. So she's very, I mean, she's someone I think we can benefit from a lot, but maybe not take as the whole thing. Yeah. So they, um, me again, sorry. They, they were, these wonderful women were all seekers of truth and they found it in their own way. So... If that is true, what can they teach us about living well in the time and the age that we are are in with integrity and in truth? Because I think if if they really define something that we call truth, whatever we conceive that to be, then something, some essence of them should help us in the age and the troubled times that we're in. So I just wanted to... I I think maybe I put a bit of emphasis on this um, kind of meditation practice. Of course, this is what the centre is about. How um, give time every day to meditation, which is the message of this centre. But it's, uh, I think, it's their message as well, um, and everything. And then I suppose uh, don't to try and find that, um, uh, that truth in everything. Not, not sort of. I don't. Know, I don't I suppose they were all open to the situation in which they lived and they tried to make sense and meaning out of it. And, and that's also a challenge to us. I mean, I go and live on a mountain in Ireland and, <laughs> live in, and that's maybe not the solution. The solution <laughs> is to, to really take life as it, as it is and, and find meaning there. And they all did that. They, none of them... I mean, Edith Stein went to her convent, but even then she was dragged out again, and she spent most of her life living in the, in the, the, the struggles of the educational world and all that involved. 
why do you put a apostrophe after Simone Weil, not Hilson or Sting? Ah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know, just the way I put the sentences together. There's <laughs> any great significance. Oh yes, all those. Well, there is things um, of all of them. I think. No, I think the, the diaries you have to read as they are. You can read them in. There's a uh, commentary there by Patrick Woodhouse, which is very good. It's a sort of a commentary. Um, the diaries themselves. It doesn't really need commentary, Essie, in many ways. I mean, she's not esoteric, or there's nothing kind of particularly hidden <laughs> with actually it's all out in the open. So I think just read the diaries. And, uh, no, Simone Weil wrote sort of um, essays and then these aphorisms. The essays tend to be collected in this a book called uh, Waiting on God, Simone Weil. The aphorisms are in a book called Gravity and, and Grace. Very striking, but some of them are quite mysterious, you don't know what she's, <laughs> what she's saying, but they're very, she doesn't waste a single word, they're very succinct. Uh, and then there's other, she wrote a book um, on the, the more social book about this, how society could be arranged after the war, I can't remember that's cool. But those, those roots. Need, the need for roots, yes. Those are the three, really just the three books. Uh, the, yes, the, note, the, the Gravity and Grace was her notebook, so in some ways that's a sort of diary, but it's a very peculiar. It's not, got nothing about her in it. It's all these sort of little aphorisms. And then Edith Stein, I like this book, really like it, which I think the only copy was sold over there. But it's, it's half the price of the essential writings. <laughs> but you'd have to get it on ABE books. I won't mention Amazon. <laughs> ABE books, that's why I get my books. It's called Edith Stein, Woman of Prayer. It's slightly pious, but it gives, gives, the, whole <laughs> gives the, the whole sort of spiritual aspect. But um, she's a harder, in some ways, her writings can feel a little conventional. They're, they're definitely more religious and predictable than the other two. Uh, certainly, compared to Simone Weil, she's She's inside the box. <laughs> but um, anyway, we're going to have a cup of tea. So I was just going to suggest actually that we finish at half past three because it seems to me that we just had the conversation. Yeah. yeah. So and we can have a three, and then a meditation. And then there's a short meditation that we can, short yeah, three, three forty, three thirty, whenever you. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, so we're meditating. Can you say what, what was we doing? Well, we were going to have a break for tea now, but actually, it seems silly to stop the flow. So we'll finish at half past three with our conversation. Have a have short a, meditation. Yes, have a break and then come back for some concluding remarks from anyone. Okay. Because I'm learning, a, I'm no expert on these, so I'm sure many of you have as much to contribute.
So we'll have some time for some more sharing in 15 minutes or so. We'll keep sharing for another 15 minutes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Sorry. We've got now. But one point I was going to make earlier when you were discussing um, Edith, Edith Stein, yeah, and um, I really liked the, the, the presentation because I've, I've learned a little bit about Edith, all these three characters, three people, a little bit about Edith Stein's life and those sort of aspects, but I haven't come across much about her spirituality. Yeah. And, um, I learned a lot about that. Yeah. What I particularly liked was, you know, you have the cartoon to illustrate it, is this way of relating the withdrawing from the world, the sort of the sense of the spiritual, you know, how we imagine it, and the clutter and the confusion of our lives, you know, which is, and, and that kind of seems to me the big problem, how you make this connection, you find yeah. it holy in what isn't, doesn't seem to be particularly yeah. holy, you know. Yes, well, that, yeah. I think that maybe it's the common dream for all of them, to find holy, that which doesn't seem to be particularly holy. Uh, the extreme version of that is the Holocaust, which is the least holy thing you can possibly imagine. And yet, they sort of find a holiness there. But then also daily life, work in the office or uh, work in the factories, they all go to the they go to the unholy place in order to find the holiness there. Maybe yeah. 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 I've, I've just got a here. Um, with Simone about um, this negation of the I, I'm a bit confused. If if she's negating her own I, but she spends her whole life wanting to suffer with the other, yeah. then she values in a way the other more than herself. Yeah, and. So then, in the light of the love of God, who loves us all, yeah. um, how does that all fit together? Because I know in the end she says it's divine mercy that she, she needs to move towards, but, and I guess that's an answer in a way that her whole life's worked her towards that point of understanding that she needs to understand the love, loving mercy of God. Yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense, yeah. but I find it really difficult that that thing of negating her own eye, yeah. but valuing every other eye. Yeah, well that's it. And for example, loving the, the, the sacraments of the church with absolute passion and not allowing herself to receive any of them is bizarre. <laughs> but that's exactly her. The important thing was the, the love of truth, not her own not herself. She was completely unimportant. Very odd. <laughs> thought just occurred to me something I, I read actually, I think it's somewhere in Waiting on God, and it seems to tie up with what you said about her attitude to the sacraments of the Catholic Church, you know, that she didn't actually participate in them. Didn't she say something like, everything is in the watching? And yeah. she quotes something from the Hindu tradition, I can't remember the details, yeah. about some bird looking. And she then relates this to the story of the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And said if Eve 
could have just continued to watch or look. Was it in the yeah. looking, not the watching? Uh, yeah. At the apple, you know, yeah. perhaps you'd have been a saint or something. Keep, keep waiting, yeah, the waiting, yeah, the patient waiting. Yeah. And you receive what you wait for, even if you, but not by grasping for it. So she received, she felt, yeah, it is. They, in the Second Vatican Council, it's this thing of the baptism of desire, that you participate in that which you desire, even if you don't get it. You participate through your desire. And she's someone who definitely desired, but wouldn't allow herself to, to ever reach for the apple. <laughs> she would never let herself. But yes, it's a bit, it's a, in the troubled times we live in today, um, how we, yeah, I suppose they, they, they're a bit of a corrective against sort of losing ourselves in the newspapers, trying to find a sort of solution out there. Because they all kind of point to the solution being an inner, particularly Effie, an inner state, uh, and the real, and um, yes. Simone is particularly I think it affects her the whole situation of the war but it, it never comes in her writings ever as far as I know it's as if she brackets the whole thing and just gets on with her search for God and yes. I mean, but she did join the resistance, so she's just, and then the need of roots. So, so uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong in saying that. So you said she also went to Spain, didn't she, to, to involve the Spanish Civil War? Spanish. Oh, yes. She did. So what was her attitude to violence? Do you know? No, I mean, she wasn't there. She was in the Spanish Civil War. She was in fighting there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. She was... She proposed to set up a, um, uh, a corps of medical nurses to, to go to the front where the soldiers were fighting and to work at the, in the battle lines and Charles de Gaulle wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. Uh, but she wanted to go where there, where there was violence, but whether she, but it was in the, in the, as a nurse really. I think some years ago I, I did try to read some Simone Weil. I, I must say I was rather put off. Um, I think it was the, um, the the Roots book, the the, the post-war thing, because if I remember rightly, I may have got this totally wrong, but talk about violence. I remember to her trying to justify the death penalty, uh -huh. as, uh, and, and and it was something about the victim giving up the self as a sort of sacrificial act. And I, yeah. I'm afraid, having read that paragraph, I didn't yeah. continue. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. there, there, is, there is probably an, ambig an ambiguity there about the nature of suffering. Yeah. Um, because I would see the death penalty as, a, as an act of violence. But, yeah. um, but I don't think she did, because yeah. somehow she had a sort of theological system which made sense of it, as it were. Uh -huh. um, yeah. and, and I was also going to say, I, I find a contradiction, and a necessary, as it were, contradiction in some of the mystics, I mean, if you take John of the Cross, who says, seek to give up, um, yeah, yeah, what, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I always wonder, who is he addressing? 
because he must be addressing an I, because the I is to seek, to do something. It's yeah. almost like saying, you must stop, you must seek to stop seeking. Yeah. And, and, and what are you addressing? You're addressing yeah. an I. Yeah. And if you don't have an I, you can't even seek to stop having an I. If you see what I mean. So I think there is that inevitable paradox. Yeah. And I think we just have to leave it as yeah. a paradox, because I don't yeah. think we can make sense of it yeah. uh, as, as, a, as a literal truth. As a, yeah. as, a, as a philosophical proposition, yeah. I think it's, al it's almost like uh, a poetic insight yeah. into the nature of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think the healthy one well, nowadays, you say, we tend to say, well, you need a healthy ego, the best. I mean, none of us have a totally healthy ego, but a healthy ego in order to lay down the ego, or, or like Etty spent half her life in therapy in order to get a relatively healthy ego, and then she was able to let it all give herself away, where sometimes Simone Weil feels she's giving herself away without the, she hasn't, she didn't have the sort of healthy attitude to herself in the background, sometimes I feel that, but poor Simone Weil, she, she, the last thing she wanted was everyone to discuss her, her psychology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, actually, um, some, when I was thinking of Simone, um, I, I feel she's just her last entry there. That is like a big, a big revelation to her. And when you were speaking, when we were speaking about uh, now, I thought, oh, she's like a John the Baptist. You know, she just, oh. she, you know, she's just very extreme, like John the Baptist. Mm. Jesus didn't do that, huh? mm. but you know, she. She yeah. does what you know what comes and yeah. um, and then yes I'm hungry but I I will not have it but you know to you know then I was thinking of them also well it's they are very young when they die so you don't have the whole, the whole you know they are on yeah. the journey and also they can't be uh, she couldn't be her and you know they are also in their country. Yeah. In the, you know, for her, for Simone, you should Chagall, and, you know, they are all actually from somewhere. Yeah. They are not just no. citizens of there. Yeah. And, for example, her, it's interesting, uh, at each time, she was from a religious family, she becomes a nun. Yeah. The other one, she had a chaotic life before, she had continues to have, you know, yeah. and she's very intellectual, Simone. So I can see something. Yeah. I don't know exactly what I see, yeah. but you know that it's really with they are in they are kind of also it has something to do with the context yeah, or context, something yeah. you know, yeah. and then also I think it's because of course there are things that with Simon, my compatriot, I find it sometimes difficult, but also it has a lot to do with the culture with everything you know. Yeah. So it's also an encouragement for me to to find my own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the final thing also about what is it God like? Uh, so God, we, how was it the thing about being like God or we see God as he sees us or something? Oh yeah, someone said that. Um, because her, she start to see uh, Simon. She start to see the mercy of God. Of yeah. I, feel, yeah. I find that quite moving. Yeah. That yeah. she's like changing actually her image of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
I just want to say the reason I love Essie is because she shows me personally that we can get through this time um, with our personhood, not necessarily my eye, I call it ego, whatever, our personhood and our humanity intact. We can get through that. That's what yeah, I take from Etty. And that's why, when well, I love them all, yeah, but Etty says we can. Well, I can. Yeah. And that's all I want. Etty's Definitely Etty is my favourite because of that. Because <laughs> she's... It's like the story of Abraham and Isaac. We all think that God wants us to sacrifice our humanity, that which we love. But God, in the end, God doesn't want us to sacrifice our humanity. We can bring our humanity. Abraham can bring Isaac with him. Uh, and it is a marvelous, so touching because she brings it with her all the time. Uh, 